Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Guardian. It may be difficult to imagine, after the heatwave we had here in the UK last week, but alongside the rest of the Northern Hemisphere, we are rapidly heading into flu season. Aches, temperatures, sore throats and coughs. Symptoms not unlike another virus that's been spreading the past 18 months. Thankfully, because of the social distancing and public health measures we took last winter, there was very little flu around. But as the UK's Health Secretary Sajid Javid has warned in the past few days, things could look very different this year. Winter, autumn... It's not just COVID that likes that part of the year, it's other viruses too. Why am I concerned about that? Because last year we didn't have much flu and we know that in some years, in a bad flu year, just how terrible it can be. I'm Madeline Finlay and this is The Guardian's Science Weekly podcast. To get us up to speed on what we do and don't know about the flu season facing us, last week I spoke to The Guardian's science editor, Ian Sample. Now, Ian, almost exactly this time last year, we recorded two podcasts about COVID and influenza, one on how the viruses might interact, and the second on what we needed to do to prepare for the oncoming flu season. Thankfully, Last time, we didn't really see any flu at all. So what could be different this year? Well, there's good reason to suspect and to be concerned about us having a larger flu season this year than we've had in a long while, actually. Estimates on how big it could be vary quite a bit. The Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, the JCVI, they've talked about modelling that suggests there could be 50% more cases, a 50% larger influenza season in the winter of 21-22. It's worth bearing in mind that influenza naturally, before COVID, cases go up and down a heck of a lot anyway. I mean, it's already an, an uncertain situation. And then you're adding on all the unusual things which are going to give us, you know, potentially at least um, a, a worse flu season this year. So what are some of those factors that might drive up the number of cases of flu this year? Well, there's a couple of big ones. I mean, the first one is that last year we had extremely low cases of influenza because because we, you know, a lot of the world was in lockdown. According to the Royal College of GPs, the cases of flu in the community were down 95%. And so what that means is that you have this population who, yeah, we've all been facing COVID and 95 or so percent of us have antibodies to COVID now. But 
influenza was pretty much wiped away. The effect that that has is that you have less immunity to influenza in the community. So when the countries start unlocking and as you open up, then fully expect influenza to come back and it could come back pretty hard. Bearing in mind we may have lower immunity, what does that mean? How does that affect the numbers or potentially the severity of flu? The biggest issue, I think, is the severity because if people across the population have reduced immunity to these strains of influenza that end up circulating this winter, then clearly they're going to be less well protected and they're going to be more vulnerable to serious um, and severe disease. Immunity will also obviously help keep kind of tab on cases and slow down the spread of infection. But with influenza, even though we have a good amount of immunity and we have a vaccine program, we still have a flu season every winter. So this isn't a virus where we reach herd immunity on. No one's thinking that that's possible. It's not like we're suddenly going to a situation where flu is going to be rife when it wasn't before. It's just that it will be seasonal and could be more damaging because of the lower protection that people will have to it. On the flip side to all of this, what might reduce the spread of flu in comparison to typical years? A lot of the interventions we've been using for COVID are going to help against flu as well. And, and you know that's obviously why we saw so little flu last season anyway. So if we see COVID cases, ironically, start becoming a problem for hospitals and so on, you could easily see that some measures will start being brought in again to try and keep COVID hospitalizations under control, and those will in turn have the same effect on influenza. Um, but it's it's funny, I mean, this whole situation with COVID, the pandemic, has made people think, actually, is, is there more we should have been doing with influenza all along? And we've worked out certain interventions that can help keep COVID cases under control. There is a real live question now about whether we should be doing some of those purely for the impact they would have on influenza. But I think probably the key thing is the vaccination program for influenza. I mean, we have this annual vaccination program for the flu. And as with last year, what they're doing this year is they're going to expand that out. So it's basically for the usual vulnerable groups, um, including pregnant women and so on, but also everybody over the age of 50, as well as the younger children groups, because you don't want these two waves of infections to hit at the same time. So... As schools are back and office workers return from the kitchen tables to their desks, the influenza vaccine is going to be critically important. The thing is, making a really effective flu vaccine each year is not easy because there are multiple strains of the virus circulating at any one time. And as it passes through communities and our bodies, it continues to evolve. And this makes choosing which strains to vaccinate against in any one year, well, a bit of a punt. This is why the network of surveillance centres really has to be on top of this. We get clues, we have things that help with predicting what's going to happen, but we absolutely have to be thinking on our feet all the time. I'm Derek Smith, I'm Professor of Infectious Diseases at Cambridge University in the UK. I'm also involved in the WHO vaccine strain selection process for the last 20 years. We actually spoke to Derek on the podcast back in 2018. 
when we did an episode on why that year's flu season was so bad and, somewhat ironically, how you keep an eye out for pandemics. Back then, Derek explained to science correspondent Hannah Devlin how the strains for the flu vaccinations are chosen. Could you just tell me a bit about the mechanics of it? So when does the vaccine start getting made for the following winter and how do scientists look at where the evolution of flu is up to? Do they kind of, you know, decode the genome and then try and make something that will latch onto onto that? How, How does it work? It's an incredible worldwide collaborative effort that works phenomenally well with uh, over 100 countries worldwide, these thousands of people worldwide, sometimes in doctor's offices, sometimes in hospitals, that are looking for people continuously that are coming in with flu. If they do have flu, taking a throat swab, sending that to one of now over 130 national laboratories, regional laboratories in, in, in the country where the person where the person got sick, testing to see if it really is flu. And then if it really is flu, in some more advanced countries, analyzing those samples themselves, but all of those countries sending some or all of their samples to one of five international centers, they receive about 20,000 strains of flu each year and run this incredible conveyor belt of analyzing these strains genetically and also for how well the current vaccine would work against those particular strains. It's an, it's an evolutionary biologist's dream and a, an incredible public health machine. To find out whether the current pandemic has changed anything, late last week, I got Derek back on the line. What goes into the decision of which strains will be vaccinated against? Is it just finding the most common strain, the strain that's picked up most times in the samples that you have in the hospitals? In the past, this has been the primary way that the flu vaccine strain has been chosen. But in recent years, there have been some very nice advances to judge this against what strains do people have immunity to. You know, if the virus hasn't changed very much in the last two or three years, then there is an opportunity to vaccinate people with a variant strain if that strain has already started to circulate, but maybe is not yet the new dominant strain that is circulated, but maybe is just at 25%. So if I have this right, because we continue to have immunity to previous year's strains, in some cases, it is worth taking a chance on including a less dominant strain in the vaccine. That's exactly right. And and in, it, it's people who are previously vaccinated and people who are previously infected. And that immunity, it actually hangs around really well. We really are protected against those older strains. We sort of think, you know, well, we have to get vaccinated against flu every year as if our immunity wanes against the against flu. It actually doesn't. It's that the virus changes, which is why we need to get revaccinated every year, and our immunity against those previous strains, it actually remains very good. Derek, obviously there's some serious analysis going into what strains are chosen, and I can imagine that this is even more challenging during a pandemic for a different virus. How has COVID impacted our monitoring of influenza? Well, from a scientific standpoint, it's been absolutely fascinating. From a public health standpoint, 
it's been a lot more difficult to know what's going to be happening this year than it is in the past. It really has been the case that there are many fewer flu strains to look at around the world. It's it's not going to be news <laughs> that I'm telling everybody, and I'm sure that you know as well, much, much less flu to be basing our educated guesses and predictions on for what might come next. And there's also the opportunity to for flu to go extinct in different parts of the world, only to be reseeded later by travel. We call such things bottlenecks, basically sort of narrowing of the variation because there is just less circulation. And then what comes out the other end when things open up, it might be more by chance rather than a a very strong selective pressure of the most fit viruses. With all these complex factors you've described, and particularly so this year when COVID is turning everything on its head, how effective can we expect the vaccines to actually be? It it hugely depends on whether or not the viruses that circulate are similar to the strains that are in the vaccine or not. But typically the flu vaccines, yeah, somewhere 50, 60, 70, 80% effective when the strain matches well. It's actually really hard to know exactly what the vaccine effectiveness is for flu because these are not carefully planned placebo-controlled trials that are being done. No, everybody who's at risk needs to get the vaccine. Not only one doesn't, but one shouldn't do the perfect experiments to figure it out. Professor Derek Smith. Now, we may not know how effective the vaccines will end up being, but of course choosing the right strains is just the first step. The NHS and health organisations around the world are now faced with a big logistical challenge. How to pull off mass flu and COVID vaccination programmes. It was something I put to Ian Sample. Ian, as you mentioned, here in the UK, more groups than ever before are being encouraged to go and get the flu vaccine. And this is alongside the COVID vaccinations and potentially boosters as well. Is it possible that people could be going to their GP or hospital or local centre and getting a flu jab in one arm and COVID in the other? That would be the ideal, actually. I think a lot of people would really appreciate that because it's one visit. The flu jab is one shot. The booster would be one shot. Um, That would be great. You know, the fact that you're going to be doing this as we expect COVID cases to be rising and as we expect influenza to be rising because, you know, the influenza season starts in October and we expect COVID cases to start rising. Now schools are back, workers have gone back to their offices. It's going to be an interesting few months for sure. When we spoke this time last year, there were concerns of what might happen when we reached flu season. And although thankfully there was a huge reduction in flu, it has set us in a slightly worse position for this winter. And obviously we'll be keeping our fingers crossed that we don't get the so-called twindemic. But even in a typical year, there's an average of around 7,000 deaths from flu. And I think that the added pressure of COVID has actually really put an emphasis on what we could be doing better for influenza as well. You know, I'm sure there's plenty of people who have started to think about those times when 
they went into work when they weren't feeling very well, which now seems at a minimum very inconsiderate to your colleagues and co-workers. So do you think that this will change how we deal with flu in the future, bearing in mind how we have seen public health measures make such a difference to case numbers? I mean, you know, back in the day before seatbelts became legal, obviously a good chunk of society was comfortable with the number of road deaths that were happening and seatbelts dramatically pulled that down. And I think we became similarly complacent about flu deaths. And if it comes down to the fact that you can just encourage people to wear masks over the flu season on public transport. So simple things like that, which hopefully people won't find a massive intrusion on their liberty, they're going to help absolutely. And the other point you've made, I think, is another really key one. I know the science advisors for government really want people to get the message that when you're feeling ill, don't go to work. We've developed this strange thing in this country, and I'm sure it's elsewhere as well, where we, we sort of soldier on and we go into work almost to show our commitment, even though we've got fluids running down our faces. And it's like, no, go home. It's not about you. It's about, you know, the best thing to do. I don't think that's really sunk in yet to many people, but I, I, I suspect it will change as people start getting ill with with colds and flu as the winter goes on and the autumn comes in. Um, I think people will actually be saying, because we're now way more used to working from home people will just say look I'm not coming in because I've got this that and the other it may mean they still work but they they won't be posing such a threat to their colleagues that'll be a massive difference mm. we can all just experience runny noses on uh, on zoom and video call <laughs> exactly exactly but it, I, I don't know why we felt that we had to go into work when we were feeling this way but um, I, I do think that that will change actually and I do think it'll make a difference So, you have it on strict authority of the Science Podcast. Don't go into work if you're ill. And wear a mask if you're in an enclosed space. Why not, if you can? As ever, things are rapidly developing when it comes to the COVID vaccination programmes, whether it's discussions of boosters or jabs for under-18s. So to keep up to date, head to theguardian.com where you can find our rolling coronavirus coverage. We've also put some links to it on our podcast webpage. That's it from The Guardian's Science Weekly podcast and me, Madeline Finlay, for today. We'll be back on Thursday with some more updates for you, this time coming from our reporters at the International Union for Conservation of Nature Conference in Marseille, France. See you then. This is The Guardian. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts.